This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you this morning, and it really was a blast to be at Advance. Uh, people kept saying, hey, thanks for coming, and please thank your family, and I was like, man, this is a blast, man. I mean, should, my wife should be thanked, definitely, but this was so much fun. You guys have a fantastic youth ministry, and I, I really do want to commend Mike and his leadership. It, it really is delightful to see the vision of parents and youth together encountering the Lord and having a lot of fun together uh, take shape in a retreat like this. We share that, that same kind of youth ministry with you at uh, Redemption Hill in Round Rock, and so we, we are also looking to build those generations together around the gospel, and it was just a joy to, to enjoy a, a very similar kind of event and experience that we would enjoy back home. And that's actually true not just of, of youth ministry, that's true of many of the values that we share together as a family of churches. So I, I did want to greet you on behalf of my church and some of the other Sovereign Grace churches and just say what a joy it is to be partnered together uh, in this family of churches that loves the gospel of Jesus Christ, that loves seeing that gospel go around the world and to the next generation. It is a gift to my church to be able to look up to your church. Uh, you are a, an older brother church, if I can put it that way. Uh, Bill is, I don't know if he'd want to be called this, but he's, he's like a father figure uh, in Redemption Hill. I mean, he might not mind, I don't know. Uh, he's like a father figure, and to, to have father figures as a pastor it is a real gift. There's nothing quite like having an established older pastor come alongside a younger pastor like myself, some of the guys here on the team, all the other pastors in Sovereign Grace, and say, hey, hey, well done, young man. Uh, keep it up. Keep preaching. Uh, it's a little bit like when you're at a t-ball game and your dad shows up and says, hey, good, good swing, bud. Uh, great job. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for Bill. I'm grateful for the other pastors on staff here. My, my brothers, I really do count as comrades in arms as we seek to preach the gospel. So just for all of those reasons, I want to say how grateful I am for you, for this church, for the partnership that we share. And to let you know you have dear friends on the north side of Austin and if you're ever there, we'd love to see you. Please come visit us. We'd love to have you at our youth retreat. Feel free if you want like a double header uh, next summer. Feel free to come. That'd be great. Great as well. Well, if you would open your Bibles, I'm looking forward to preaching God's Word this morning uh, from the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to cover the first four glorious verses of this book. And when I'm preaching at home, I, I typically remind us right before I read that we need to remember we're about to read God's Word, and it has power and authority and life-changing grace. We come underneath it in submission. We come underneath it with joyful reverence. We come expecting God Himself to re-speak it into our hearts. Let's come to it with that anticipation this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all, all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Lord, by your Spirit, bless the preaching and the believing of your Word. Well, this last year, I was observing and keeping track of a certain shooter in the NBA named Stephen Curry. Some of you will know him well. Some of you don't care. That's okay. You'll get the illustration in any case. Uh, But this last year, he was breaking the three-point record in the NBA. And I've watched his career and enjoyed it, as many have over the years since college. And I was, I was interested in the breaking of this record. It's kind of a historic thing. And after the record was broken, obviously all the sportscasters uh, went nuts. This is the kind of thing they live for. And, and I was listening to one sportscast, and they were trying to describe uh, this event and this one guy. I'd enjoyed it to a point, and then he, he really got carried away. Uh, he got carried, his vocabulary ran way ahead of him And if I remember correctly, he said something like, we are basking in the glow of his magnificence. And to that point, I enjoyed the sportscast, and I thought, no, no, I think you've gone a bit far there. It is just a leather ball and an iron hoop after all. Let's let's back off a little bit. We're not basking in the glow of anybody's magnificence. It's it's impressive. It's something to observe, something to clap politely for, but, but no... No, that kind of phrase, that kind of phrase really shouldn't be applied to any kind of sports person doing anything even remotely impressive, and it's going to ring hollow for anybody who has seen real glory. But I, I understand why sportscasters, sometimes politicians, various kinds of cultural influencers, they... they They search for phrases like that because they're searching for something that they want to see. They they use phrases like that because there's something inside of them that I get. They actually do want to bask in the glow of magnificence. And so they're looking for something that can sort of feel a little bit like what they've been aching to see. This world and our hearts, we can't escape it. We are aching for the glow of magnificence. It's what we were made to ache for, to long for. It's what we were made to see. And until we see it, we always feel like we're we're looking for it. We look for it in things like athletes and politicians and artists. And we try to applaud them and shout and cheer and get excited about them because that's that's what we want to do. We want to respond to something truly magnificent. But this passage gives that magnificence to us. This passage comes to us and says there, there actually is a person that we could rightly say we can bask in the glow of his magnificence. There actually is a person who is so glorious, 
so transcendent, so beyond imagination, so inexhaustible, that we can bask endlessly in His glory, and actually, that's what our souls were made to do. This brief paragraph gives the glory that we've been longing for. It is the glory of Jesus Christ. And I think if I could encapsulate the impact of this paragraph in a phrase, it would be this, rejoice in the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the magnificence of Jesus Christ. This is what we were made to do. I really just have that one main application even this morning, that this would be a fresh passion, a fresh pursuit, that we would distance ourselves from the kind of lesser glories that consume this world, and we would focus ourselves on this greater glory in private, in our families, and on Sunday mornings, that we would rejoice in the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And this passage gives us an opportunity to do that. John Owen, the pastor, said it this way, Make up your mind, make up your mind, that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This, he says, is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So, so let's, let's make up our mind to do that this morning. In the remaining minutes that we have, let's make up our mind to bask in the glow of what is truly glorious, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, and to enjoy what the world is searching for, but it is right here in front of us, described by God himself, the glory of his Son. Let's dive into the passage. The passage begins with this overarching statement about God's revelation in history. Notice that in verse 1. The writer says it many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You could think of the whole Old Testament as passing before his mind and saying, look at all the different ways that God revealed himself to Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and David. All of those ways God spoke gloriously to our fathers through the prophets. But now, he says, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, this is not just one way of speaking in the Old Testament and another way of speaking in the New Testament. It's very clear that the writer of Hebrews sees the speaking of God in the person of his Son as the ultimate speaking of all. He is the highest peak after a mountain of God's revelation. It is as if he, he tours a mountain range with well-known people like Moses and David and Isaiah and Daniel. And he says, you, you know these mountains well. You know how glorious they are. They are majestic. They are impressive. You've read the passages. You know how incredible are some of the phrases. And you, as a church, you know this right now as well. You're going through, right, the Ten Commandments. And the glory of God that is revealed in His holiness and His law and the righteousness that should be seen in His people. But then he says, but, but drift and refocus your eyes over here and see the peak that towers over them all. See the peak that towers over every other revelation. 
all the prophets led up to this one climactic moment. And if we read the rest of the New Testament, we know actually they didn't just contrast with it. They were pointing towards it. When you got to the top of each of those peaks, there was a big sign that said, look over there. We're just, we're just promenades. We're just observatories to help you look over there. Because that's the great peak. So Moses said, stand on my shoulders and see the great peak. And David, stand on Psalm 22 and see the great peak. And Isaiah, look here at the suffering servant right there. That's the great message. That's the great glory. Now to be clear that the writer of Hebrews, he has a, a great esteem for the Old Testament, but he says there is nothing like the way God has spoken in his Son. P.T. O'Brien, the commentator, says it this way, God has fulfilled his promises uttered through the prophets and spoken climactically and finally in his Son. The person and work of Jesus, his death and resurrection and exaltation point to the inauguration of the end, the time of fulfillment. A fundamental turning point has been reached. The Son alone is the supreme revealer of God. God has no greater message to the world than Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's ultimate message to the world. Now, as I was thinking about that this morning, I was convicted by how much I like to check on the news of this world. I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, if this is God's ultimate news to all of creation, greater even than his revelation in the Old Testament scriptures, then why am I so interested in the latest tidbit of information about what's going on in the world right now? Why do I feel such a need to check in on what's happening? Who's been saying what? If news greater than what Moses could share and David could share and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, if, if it is present in the person of Christ, then surely that's the news I should be longing to read in the morning. Surely that's the news I should want to check back in on in the middle of the day. That's the news that should put me to sleep at night. Not the news of these lesser individuals, less worthy even than Moses and David and the prophets. No, there is something even greater than them. Therefore, something way greater than the kind of trivial little bits of sand that rise up and say, this is worthy of paying attention to. There is news that God has said. And it is the news that is his son. That's how the writer of Hebrews opens his book. And then what follows this opening phrase is, is just phrase after phrase, word after word, piled on top of each other about the glory of Christ. Any one of them could be a message. But, but I want to try to give an illustration for how this passage works. Perhaps you've been, many of you I'm sure, have been to the ocean where there was large waves and, and when you go and the waves are, are rocking into you one after another, when they're up at your shoulder height or whatever, I, I want to try to use that idea, but change it from water to light, okay? So you've got to stick with me a minute. Imagine that you're there in the ocean and, and light, waves of light come hitting you again and again and again. Each, each wave of light builds off of the last and staggers you further and strikes you further, but they're not, they're not dangerous. They're actually uplifting. They're energizing. They're infusing you with a sense of glory and majesty, and you're, you are literally basking again and again. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. 
It's as if he's saying, take this and then take that and then take this again and take this again. And by the end of it, you're so saturated with the glory of Jesus Christ that you're overwhelmed. You can't do anything except for rejoice in his glory. That's the way the passage works. Now, I, I want to loosely group what he says here in, in two categories, his identity and his position. Who is this person, we might say, that God has spoken climactically in? Who is this son? Well, first let's look at his identity. The writer says, look down at your Bibles, that he, this son, was appointed the heir of all things. So he's the heir of the world that he created. To be an heir is to be the one who is destined to receive it all. He's the one who receives it all. He will be the selected owner and the recipient. He is that of the entire world. So the entire world has a stamp on it that says, belonging ultimately to Jesus Christ. Going to Jesus. If there would be such a thing as a divine will, we would say, it all goes to Jesus. Who was there in the manger? Who was there walking the streets of Galilee? Who is there now in heaven? The heir of the world. And yet... He who is the heir is also the creator. You see what he's doing? He's going as far as he can into the future and as far as he can into created past. And he's saying he is the beginning of it all and he is the end of it all. He who is the heir is also the creator of all things through him whom he created the world. So God somehow through the agency of Jesus created everything that he would eventually give to his son. So who causes the sun to shine? The world, contrary to modern post-enlightenment thinking, is not just some sort of natural mechanism that somehow got set in place and just sort of runs endlessly. No, it, it's actively being maintained. It's actively being maintained. And he was actively created... And so what he's saying is Jesus Christ is the one that created it all and is the one who will receive it all. This is a reason to wonder in the glory of Jesus. Everything we see started with Jesus and will end with Jesus. Everything you see, every mountain, every tree, every human being started from the creation of Jesus Christ and will end as his inheritance. He is also, his identity includes that he is God revealed in perfect glory. Look down at your Bibles again. He keeps going, another wave of light hits us. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's not just an agent and an heir that is less than God, not just some kind of servant that God approves of. No, he is God himself. It's important not to get this wrong. It's possible in our world to copy some things and to have a copy, an identical copy of that thing. So you have a sheet of paper, you put it in the copier, now you have another identical sheet of paper. The problem with that way of thinking is nothing can be produced that exactly represents God. You can't copy God except with God. You can't copy God. He's too vast. He's too infinite. He's too transcendent. So what the writer is saying is not, it's not just that he looks like God. It's saying that he is God, but a God that can be seen. 
You see that in the passage? He's saying he's the exact imprint of God, and you cannot copy God without that thing being God. But this is God seen. He is the radiance, the shining forth of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's guarding his readers from a couple of dangers. He's saying, no, he's, he's not just an, an imitation. He's not just something that kind of shows what God looks like. He's not just an actor that represents something else. He is the exact thing that he is representing. But he is that in such a way that we can see it. That we can enjoy it. That we can look at it. We can, we can bask in it. He is the exact imprint of God. If you want to see, the writer would say, if we want to see the strength of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, you can see it in Jesus Christ. And God has not concealed himself from us, but has shown us the truth of his nature in the one who carries his nature to perfection. Now here is a reason right now to confront any apathy in the study of Jesus. If he is the radiance of the glory of God, then any boredom with his glory is due to our capacity rather than the infinite nature of that glory. Listen, we, we, you cannot exhaust the glory of Jesus Christ. Because to do so would, would be to mean that you think you can exhaust the glory of God. Because they are one and the same. We cannot exhaust the glory of Jesus Christ. God is more valuable than anything, infinitely so. God is as more valuable than his entire universe as a gold mine would be to a grain of sand. God is more valuable than all the things that he created. He, he's more valuable than all the treasures of the world. He's more valuable than all the galaxies and all the treasures we have as yet undiscovered in those galaxies. He's more valuable than all of those things. And here he says he has made himself visible in Jesus Christ. So, so boredom with the study of the glory of Christ, it, it'd be like a grain of sand saying to the gold mine, I, I don't see a lot of value in you. I think I've, I've found it out. I've searched it all out, and I, I, find, I find it no longer valuable. <laughs> the problem is with the grain of sand. I, I don't think you've seen it all yet. I don't think we've seen it all yet, the glory of who he is. He is more valuable. Now, I, I want to ask us to consider as we think about this identity, does the study of the glory of Jesus hold us with greater anticipation than any other event in our life? Does the study of the glory of Jesus hold us with greater anticipation than any other event in our life? Because it is worth more than any other event in our life. The writer wraps back around and then says he is also the sustainer of the universe. So he began with creation. He talks about the end of all things. He says in the meantime, he's sustaining all things. This one that is God. He makes sure the sun shines every morning. He makes sure my heart beats right now and your heart beats right now. He is perpetually holding up everything that he created. And, as P.T. O'Brien points out, the immediate context, he says, suggests the additional nuance of the sun carrying all things to their appointed end or goal. So it's not just that he's holding it there saying, what do you want me to do with this? He's carrying it somewhere. To its end. He's the one that's directing and orchestrating. And he's causing it all to go where it ought to go. 
The world and its direction is fully under the power of the word of Christ. Now this is his identity. This is why we should bask in his glory. This is also the reason why we should evaluate our hearts and see, are, are there other studies that I am too excited about like that newscaster was? It's good to evaluate whether our emotional excitement matches the value of what we're excited about. You know what I mean? You could think about something that you might get really excited about, and it's pretty cool. But is that in keeping with the emotion we express at the glory of Jesus? If not, we need to reverse our values, because we might be bowing down before a grain of sand. And we don't want to do that. We might be saying, have you seen my grain of sand? It's beautiful. It's better than all the other grains of sand. It's amazing. Let me tell you some of the stats of my grain of sand. It sparkles in just the right way when the sun hits it. And sometimes at night I gaze longingly, looking at it and thinking, who am I that I am worthy of such a grain of sand? Sometimes I take it to other people and I look at their grains of sand and I say, oh, it's nice, but it's not mine. Let me tell you about my grain of sand. And all the time, there is the gold mine that is Jesus Christ standing there and saying, would you like to put down your grain of sand and enjoy something truly magnificent? He created all things. All things will go to him. He sustains all things. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. This is his identity. This is who he is. Look at his glory. How easy, even if it's not we ourselves, to be impressed with things. To be impressed with those who hold up a team, hold up a franchise, hold up a political party, hold up a country, and not to be impressed with the one who holds up the universe. How easy. Isn't it easy? And isn't the world filled with people basically pointing out like that sportscaster, look at this guy, he's the future. Look at this lady. She represents everything we need in society. Look at this idea. Look at this activism. Look at this person over here. They're holding up this major work in society and humanity. Look at this artist. I want to say, check out Jesus Christ. He's holding up the universe. So good job, Mr. Quarterback, for holding up your team of 40 players and your business. He's holding up the universe. Good job, Mr. Business Leader. You took your business from suffering to thriving. He's taking the world from its beginning to its end. Good job, Mr. Student. You got a great average on your grades. He counts the stars. Good job, person that's doing good works of mercy and care in this world. He's rescuing humanity. Listen, it's good to monitor whether our emotion and our anticipation of a thing is in keeping with the real value of that thing. Lest we be like that guy and be basking in the glow of a grain of sand. We don't want to be that guy because here's the gold mine right here. And it's just the first half. That's his identity. He keeps going to talk about his position. Let's look at that. Look at that. Look down at your Bibles. He's all this stuff, and then he says, after making purification for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than, than theirs. This, this, speaks to, this speaks to his position and how he got there, his credentials and his position. First, we notice the accomplishment of his position, what allowed him to have this position. He sat down as one who had made purification for sins. Jesus can speak of purification for sins in the past tense as a completed act. Now, there is nobody that can do that. There is nobody that can do that. This is the one who can say in the past tense, he made purification for sins. Now, this this language, it's language of the Old Testament priesthood where there was people that were blemished by sin, unclean by sin, and they would come to the priest and the priest would slaughter an animal that stood in for the sinner and would sprinkle their blood and then the person could be declared judicially clean. They were cleansed of their sin. He made purification for them. They were purified legally before God because of this sacrifice. The problem was that these priests just stood there day after day after day after day, sacrificing goats and lambs and ox over and over, sprinkling blood and sprinkling blood. And the people kept coming again and again and again. I've done it again. I've done it again. I've done it again and again and again until finally there was one great priest. And he came... And he didn't offer an animal. He offered himself. So the priest was also the offerer of his own sacrifice. George Meaton says, the priest and the victim came together. To paraphrase him. This, this is what he's saying. He's saying he made purification for the sins of his people. He dealt with them. He paid for them. This is the language of the cross. So the one who is all-glorious as creator, who is the heir of all things, who upholds the galaxies in every beating heart, was the same one who died in the place of sinners. Now, this is beyond understanding. Octavius Winslow has a passage in his book, The Precious Things of God, which you might enjoy if you read that book. And he talks about how even if he had done nothing to ransom sinners, he would still have been the glorious object of heaven's praises. He would still have been the Father's delight. He would still have been the worship of angels. He would still have been the sustainer of the universe, even if he had done not a single thing. But here the writer of Hebrews says, He, the Creator, took on flesh, made purification for sins. He died for sinners. His people have a priest and a remedy. They are no longer to be condemned for their sins because Christ was condemned in their place. They can go to God holding up Christ and say, purification, here it is. And so completely did he do that, that he sat down. He sat down because what he did was so perfect, there was no other sacrifice to make. So that a sinner comes to God and says, I I have a priest who sat down. I have a priest and he doesn't need to be there anymore. And you go to the priest and, oh, I think you might have to to offer another sacrifice because I did it again. Oh, no, no, that was enough. That covered you past, present, and future forever. That covered you past, present, future, forever. Remember, same one who upholds the galaxies hung on the cross. Same one who made the minutest atoms felt the pain of the nails. The same one who commands the angels died forsaken on that tree. 
That's the way the writer of Hebrews wants us to feel. It's the same one. It's the same one. Can we really bask in any other glory than this? No! I mean, it's beyond absurd. It's offensive. It's blasphemous. Notice the authority of his position. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he has all authority. God's right hand symbolizes his power. So Christ sits at the right hand, at the place of power of God. He rules over all things. He is absolutely supreme. He dictates what will happen. Just as as surely as Nebuchadnezzar was humbled before God, all kings and mighty ones of this earth who are basking in the glory of their own grain of sand, they will be humbled before the majesty of this one who sits at the throne of God. So the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who will receive all things, who died in the place of his people, who made purification for their sins, he now sits as the God-man at the right hand of the Father. It's important that we understand that difference. He was always with God as God the Son, but now he sits with God as God the Son who is the God-man. Do you see the greater glory that's there? He was always with God as God the Son, but now he is God the Son and Savior. Who sits at God's right hand? Your Savior. Who sits at God's right hand? Not, yes, God the Son, but God the Son who became incarnate and remains incarnate, remains there showing the evidence of His crucifixion on our behalf, remains there as a perpetual testimony that our sins have been forgiven. Who sits at God's right hand? Your slain lamb now standing. Who sits as close to God as one could be because he is God the Son, your substitute who stands in for you. What does that mean for you? The person running the universe is the person who died for your sins. The person running the universe is the person who died for our sins. Now, if if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, but you thought it'd be good to come to church this morning, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming. We love having you here. This is the news you need to hear. The person who's actually running the universe and will, I guarantee it, bring it to a glorious conclusion, offers himself in payment for your sins so that you can get in on his big party at the end. So you can get in on that too and you can be there with him because all the people that he purified get to be there with him. And so we want you to be there with him. We don't want you to be left out because he actually has authority. And I don't know what you've heard about various political leaders and parties and historical movements and all this kind of stuff. There's only one person who's going to bring it all in at the end, and that's Jesus Christ. And he offers his death on behalf of sinners so that though they would have been left out, they get to be brought in. And this this is great news. No wonder, he says, he has spoken to us in his Son. He concludes this passage with what might seem an odd conclusion to us, 
but for them was not odd at all. He says he's become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, now unfortunately, we, <laughs> we are, are undermined by an unrealistic view of angels because we pick up the little thing and put him somewhere on our nativity scene at Christmas and so forth. Or we have little cute cherubs, kind of like Cupid with wings and a little divine crown on his head. And, and that's not the way the Bible describes angels at all. They're not sort of these, these kind of harp-playing, like artistic, gentle beings and souls. No, no. Angels in the Scriptures are overwhelmingly majestic and deadly. You can read about just one of them in 2 Kings 19. Same story is repeated in Isaiah 39. One angel wiped out 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian army in one night. One angel. That's God's power displayed in an angel. One angel. They're so glorious that in the Revelation, John wants to just bow down and he just assumes this, this, this has got to be God. He just bows down and worships this thing. So when this writer says, and they would have been tempted to worship angels too, he says, he, he is far beyond the angels. So I, you get that angels are impressive and we don't, but try to get in on what they're thinking. Angels, these mighty supernatural beings, these warriors that are impressive and glorious and can take out whole armies and, and conquer things and even control aspects of creation at God's command and do mighty things like they do in the book of Revelation. He says Jesus is so far beyond them in authority, as far beyond them as the name he has inherited his name, which represents his position, his rightful place as the heir of the world, the son of God, the savior of sinners. He is the head of all things. They are merely underlings to his ultimate greatness. There is nothing that comes close to comparing with him. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to go back to John Owen's recommendation and ask that we do this. It's just one major application. Make up our minds to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ. Make up your mind. Can I just urge us, all of us, to make up our minds to do this? It's not complicated. It just requires doing it. And actually, part of what it requires is calling a grain of sand what it is. It's intentionally not being impressed with those things that are not that impressive. Now, I'm not saying being super spiritual and your mother makes a nice cake for your birthday. You think, well, it's okay. It's not Jesus, but it's okay. I'm not, I'm not recommending some kind of freaky weird, I can't appreciate the good things in life. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, let's reserve a rightful place of superlatives and glory and meditation for the glory of Jesus Christ. When we think about the big game, let's, in our heart, just say, yeah, yes, but let's just, it's a game. I mean, it's a game. I really hope they win, but it's a game. And I, I'm really going to insist, heart, that you keep it in the right lane. It's a big business deal. I mean, it is a big business deal. Yeah, Maybe it's a little bigger grain of sand, but it's a grain of sand. So I'm, I'm not going to get caught up in worrying about it. 
or exulting in it. It's a big house sale. It's a really bad news story. It's a cancer diagnosis. It's hard or it's glorious, but it's a grain of sand. And the gold mine of Jesus Christ is greater than it all. Fathers, there is nothing more important for you to do than to tell your children the best way you can about the glory of Jesus Christ. They should detect no greater desire in you than that they would come to see this glory. You should be more excited about this than you are. I should be. We should be. Than we are about an SAT score or a high-scoring game or a really good job finally on the front lawn. We should be more excited about them seeing this, and that should be clear to them. Mothers, there is nothing more important that happens in the day than that your children see the glory of Jesus. It's more important even than them seeing the danger of their sin, which is really important. But we don't want to get that wrong as parents. Children need to see the depth of their sin so that they can see he made purification for sinners like me and like you. Husbands, there is no greater thing your wife needs than to see the glory of Jesus. And the greatest thing you can do with your manly strength and provision is to make sure she has time to do this. Wives, if your husband is discouraged at work, worried about the boss, concerned about the mortgage, worried about his health, there is no greater gift than pointing out the glory of Jesus. Friends, if you have a neighbor, they need to see the glory of Jesus. On his glory, we will meditate for endless days. Make up your mind, whatever you have to do, in private, in your family times, and on Sunday. I'm going to see the glory of Jesus. There is more to be seen than has been seen. We will spend endless days seeing. And we can start every morning, every Sunday, every family devotional time. Let's see a little more. Let's make up our mind. Let's bask in the glow of the one who is truly magnificent. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we who literally are lumps of clay have been allowed to see what we should not deserve to see. Lord, as if a lizard were carried to the heights of an eagle, and allowed to see. Lord, you have carried us to the heights of the universe. 
and allowed us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, do this more and more. Lord, in, in every member of this church and those who are here this morning, Lord, in my own church back home, Lord, in our family of churches, Lord, reveal the glory that we were meant to see. And let us rejoice in it. Let us rejoice in your glory. Because your glory is not just the greatest news. It's good news, Lord. It's good news for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.